everybody. Uh, welcome to the inaugural edition, maybe the pilot edition of the Hidden Gemcast. Uh, I'm Emil J, and alongside with me is my dear, close, personal, longtime friend, Mr. David Bixenspan. What's going on, my friend? Getting ready to look at some Gem Mint 10s. Oh, yeah, you know it, man. Don West. Uh, you know what would be a cool thing for us to do before we even discuss the premise of what this show is? Mm-hmm. Uh, for us to uh, just start talking about how cool Don West is. But we can do that later. Uh, we should really uh, kind of talk about what we're doing here, I think. Yes. I mean, it should be fairly obvious, but we had been kind of threatening slash promising each other that we would do this for at least six months. I think it's longer, though. Yeah, probably. Once once the uh, WWF started beefing up their Hidden Gems uh, selection. Weekly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's when we really started kind of to talk about uh, this specific project, wherein uh, we just kind of want to discuss all the cool wrestling footage that is being unearthed uh, in a bunch of different places, not just the WWF Network. Uh, but wherever they, wherever they may come from, because let's be honest, there's stuff coming out, uh, often. Sorry. I unmuted myself and then I immediately tap mute again. (laughs) Um, yes, the double mute. And also we first started talking about, I think like the day they announced they were going to be weekly. So I don't want Eric, Phil, or Matt to think that we stole new footage Fridays from them somehow from their, uh, Sagunda blog. No, no, I don't think they would be very mad about that. Eric and I. I don't are, think they uh, would be, cool. but I think Phil would joke that he was. Sure, sure, of course. Especially with you. Yes. Mr. Bixen Span. Uh but yeah, I mean, just with the sudden uh you know, we I I feel like we kind of went through this before in the uh wrestling footage community where there was like a sudden footage boom. Uh what would you say about like what, 15 years ago? Yeah, I would Ish. say once once burning DVDs really picked up, you had I mean you had two things. You, you had as far as stuff that was available, more people were getting a hold of it because it was easier to copy and cheaper and all that, mm-hmm. and it was also easier to put online too if you wanted to. But there were more people who were kind of coming out because of the DVD thing either because they wanted to put their stuff on DVD and then they just started trading or uh, just um, all all manners of things. I mean, you know, the Memphis Evansville set that's mm-hmm. out there, you know, that's from, you know, very beginning of 85 through, I think it's November 1990. You know, lovely quality tapes from our friend Trent in Evansville, who he was just a guy who would tape this stuff. I don't think he had ever really traded. I think mm-hmm. he put the set on either iOffer or eBay. And I reached out to him and like, at that moment, he was like, oh, wait, I can use this as trade bait. <laughs> so, yeah. so he had all this stuff he had taped himself, and he even had some other tapes that he hadn't been able to get to work with his VCR for whatever reason that I transferred for him because I happened to have a really nice VCR at the time. And it's weird, too, because when I pull that stuff up on YouTube, I could – because it, it – I guess because I had the nicer VCR that a little bit more of like the denoising features and stuff in it, I could still tell mm-hmm. which stuff I converted. Oh, that's but that's cool though. Like, yes, it that's is. Like no, sort of, but it's fun. But yeah, 
Yeah, so, that's like a fun thing. Like that was a huge rush of it, especially also because no one knew that the uh, the Memphis B show with the arena matches ever aired in Evansville. They picked up like a second station that ran it for like six months in eighty seven. Yeah, that and that's that's all totally cool stuff too. All like the the arena footage Memphis show. Yeah. Like I don't know how many people have gone out of their way to check that out, but like that's seriously cool stuff because it's just all footage basically from the Mid South Coliseum. Yeah, like I I wish we had more of the earlier episodes out there too where i mean there's more coliseum stuff but there's also a lot of tupelo they taped a lot of the tupelo oh yeah yeah you're right yeah yeah and what one of these days someone's gonna just get cornet to put all of his stuff out there because i know he has a lot of that for sure um well i i i gotta say eventually at some point uh i mean not that uh, Jim has done a bad job at keeping Cornette's collectibles full of a lot of cool stuff. I mean, he has. He's always been really good at uh, merchandising. Yes. But you got to think eventually at some point uh, there's going to be serious money to be made on whatever he might have that is not out there. Well, and if nothing the, else, he has the best Memphis collection. Right. Now, okay, now that we're talking about this, I mean, and this is how this show is going to go. It's going to be uh, very uh, sort of, uh, you mentioned this, let's talk about this and talk about that. Um, very conversational, I guess you would say. Um, but speaking of Memphis collections, what about this rumor about the Jimmy Hart Memphis collection? What do you think? I think he has stuff. I mean, I know he has stuff that other people don't have. I just don't know how much or what or any really any details. So here's what I can tell you and the listeners. Um, first I ever heard of this was, again, might have been 15 years ago, but maybe a little less, so maybe a decade or so ago. And I think I was talking to Charles Warburton, you know, longtime tape trader from here in New York City. And he told me that, Okay, so have you you ever seen the episodes of the Memphis of the Memphis Classic Show on WMC that also aired on America One, where all of a sudden they just showed like like there was one time where they showed almost a full show from like the mid to late seventies, and there were a few weeks where all of a sudden they were showing stuff no one had ever seen before, like Orndorff in Memphis, and and that's rumored to have come from Jimmy, right? Yes. So has Charles? Yeah, I've never me, seen it. Yeah, I've never seen that stuff, but I've heard it. And I need to I need to find it because I don't know if that's floating around that readily, those couple episodes. Actually, the Orndorff one might not be. The other ones are on YouTube. I know for okay. sure. But the Orndorff one I need to check. But anyway, apparently what I was told by Charles was that one day Jimmy Hart just brought over some tapes and everyone else, Lawler, Macklin, whoever, were like, where did you get this? We've never seen this before. <laughs> oh, and my God. The next time anything like that came up, I don't remember. I think I was just talking to Lance Russell one time, and he mentioned something about it would have been years ago. It may be less, less years than you'd think because Jimmy lives in Florida, but 
he was at Jimmy's house and Jimmy had like a closet full of tapes. And I don't remember if they were like broadcast tapes or whatever, if he even told me. But then I never heard anything for a long time. And then eventually I found out that the stuff that uh, Rick Crane of 70s TV, 70s-TV.com, I should say, the stuff mm-hmm. that he converted. <laughs> great guy, by yes. the way. Oh, Rick Rick's Crane. great. Yes. Yeah. Rick, Rick has some films that he had kind of converted and restored himself, some Memphis films. And some of them he had gotten on eBay from a seller with the username Jimmy Hart Jr. And uh-huh. he said it seemed like, and from what everything I knew, it seemed like it made sense that that was actually, it was actually Jimmy Hart's son. And I have heard stories about him, about his his wife and or kids having the stuff after the divorce. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask. I was like, do you think it's true that, like, you know, he had it at one point, but then after the divorce, like, that stuff kind of went bye-bye from him. Yeah. Well, and also, okay, do you remember how he had, like, his mail-order wrestling classic set at one point? That he had, like, an infomercial or, like, a 60-second 800 number ad for on TV? Very, very vaguely, yeah. Okay, so I think it was, like, part XWF. It was mostly stuff you wouldn't care about. Well, okay, I know mm-hmm. you would want to watch XWF, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, I got it from him eventually at a convention, the Memphis DVD, because that was the only one I really wanted, but he never sold it on its own, at least initially. And I get home, and there was... I don't remember if there was stuff that wasn't available elsewhere, but there was stuff that was in, like, broadcast quality that I had never seen in broadcast quality before. So mm-hmm. there's stuff. I, who knows how much, but there's definitely more. I'm sure that he has where he got it. Who knows? Was he like, I mean, I, I've never asked anyone like whether or not, like I guess Jimmy Hart, I mean, as a songwriter, maybe had money coming in a decent amount. Even back then, is it possibly just had an early VCR? Maybe. I mean, the Gentry's did have that smash hit. Well, like, did he, he write? Be, was he a writer on Keep On Dancing, though? Uh, he, he might have been. But I, I I, think what you just started to say at the very end there is, like, a really good way to sum up this show. Is like, uh, or, like, the premise of, you know, what we want to talk about on a regular basis is there's stuff, but we don't know where it's coming from and who's got it. But we know that it's coming out because uh you, you know like uh, w- one of the m- more famous ones uh, you know this is when that uh juarez lucha showed up on youtube out of nowhere like a few years ago it was like six or seven videos and it disappeared very quickly too most of it. and nothing like it has ever been seen since well that was even <laughs> weirder though because you could tell it had aired recently it looked like it aired recently on like a digital sub channel because there were like modern graphics and like mm-hmm. modern, like it had a dt call sign i think and clearly it had been airing there but yeah and, and that's the, the thing like who matches. who who owns that stuff? Right. How much of that exists? And also, like, because the thing is, like, okay, like, American footage, uh, you know, 
there's been a lot of that uh, kept, preserved, and then later shown from all sorts of time periods. You know, we have the Chicago Film Archives. We have all the stuff that the WWF Network has. You know, we have a whole bevy of stuff from this country. Japan, very, very good at preserving a lot of their footage that we've seen. You know, uh, there's been those JWA specials that have been coming on uh, G+, right? Like, with never-before-seen footage. Yeah, and I need to start getting into those because I kind of knew they were happening, but I hadn't been keeping track that they... Like, they've been doing a bunch of those, right? So there's a bunch of new stuff coming out. Yeah, there's uh, one about... There was one about Ricky Dozan. There was one all about Giant Baba. And then there was another one all about the B.I. Cannon. Uh, and they were all, like, five-part... I, I, I have them all. Uh, like, I'll have to, like shoot you a link or something or whatever but, however yeah, that works yeah i mean that's but yes like aside from like for some i mean we know they preserved it but like for some reason there was never that much jwa released but otherwise like generally it seemed like if there was stuff that was available especially in the era where stuff was being put on samurai tv mm-hmm. or other networks on classic shows generally it was coming out yeah and like iwe we have a lot of you know, dating back. We have a lot of all Japan dating back, New Japan dating back. But what we don't really know, when, when you think of the, the three primary, uh, c- you know, countries, I guess, where uh, professional wrestling is big between America, Japan, and Mexico, uh, Mexico is really, really a big question mark. Yes. I mean, well, we, we even know for England, too. Mark. We know for England, too. Right, but but yeah, but you know, uh, and but we also I, I have, a, England, we have a lot of that too because of the world of sports classic shows. Yeah, yeah, we know that we we know that they have kept a lot of stuff, but we just don't know what. Well, and, for the earlier stuff, we don't necessarily know what, especially right because that and, stuff and they didn't me, put on the classic show. Go ahead. I, I almost want to say, let's get it sight on scene. Forget doing the research. Just give it to us. Let us figure it out. Like, why are we going to pay you to do research on something and tell us what it is? Just convert it and send it to me. I'll tell you what it is. You know what I mean? Like, let's skip that. Let's skip that entire pro. If, if, if that's even possible, I don't know if it is. But, you know, America, we know. Japan, we know. England, we know. But Mexico, who the hell knows? And how much of their, how much could it be? Like, could the Luteroth family be sitting on everything? <laughs> Maybe. I, that's my understanding, because there is an archive at, I think there's an archive at Arena Mexico. I don't know how much is that and how much is at Televisa, but they're, yeah, that's my understanding, at least for their stuff. Um you know, stuff that we know was actually produced for TV and a lot of it wasn't either aired in Mexico City or you know, it was only aired in other parts of Mexico or aired in the U.S., you know, it still was being taped and aired somewhere. Yeah. That, that, that to me, I think, will be the craziest uh, kind of, like, opening of the floodgates if that ever does happen because that it's just so... There's just such a big question mark in terms of how much and from when and how good is it. Right. Quality-wise. Right. And, you know, years ago, a lot of, like, 
rich Japanese collectors, you know, lucha fans in Japan, bought up as much as they could that they could get privately from, you know, whoever had handhelds or had just had anything that they could get their hands on, mm-hmm. which also messed with the market, which was for why, why for a long time, like just stuff wasn't coming out of Mexico or it was just hard to try to get stuff from Mexico because their expectations were too high as far as what people would give them. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So they priced themselves sort of out or or not not necessarily like that, but they thought that they were going to get that kind of money forever, basically. Yeah, but I mean there is more stuff though. So wait, so you mean to tell me that there's like there's guys with like handheld like lucha stuff from like well it's stuff we have now like eventually jose fernandez worked with the right got in touch with the right people to get that oh okay 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 i thought i thought you meant like like stuff like when when you when you led with rich japanese collectors i thought you meant more so the ones that are kind of still hoarding their footage I mean, to a they, degree they were for a while that stuff was not out there for a long time and then like, thank goodness the DVD, yeah yes as the dvd error was progressing jose was able to get in touch with the right people anyway um and you know there's probably more stuff that's out there there's probably more stuff that japanese tv you know crew shot like world you know world pro wrestling on tv tokyo had lucha stuff can constantly but it was usually very clipped up Yeah, it was. I have both of those sets. I have both of the World Pro sets, which I haven't gone back and looked at in a very long time. I'm sure they're fun. When I I first got them, they were really fun to watch. Yeah, and there is a lot of Lucha, and I think it's... Is it mostly UWA, or is it a mix of UWA in Rio, Mexico? I I From what I remember, it's primarily UWA. Yes, which again, we don't even have, which is really a key stuff, what we have the least of. Yeah. So I'm sure there's more out there. Will it ever come out? Who knows? You know, most, so for UWA, what we really have, we have the New Japan TV suits. We have the clipped up World Pro Wrestling stuff. We have the stuff that got released on home video in Japan. We have the TV from the early 90s. We have a few handhelds from the mid 80s. And that's, oh, and the home videos from 91. That's about it. Yeah, and and, and 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 from what we've seen from all that, we know it's like such a good promotion, <laughs> you know, and and that's what drives us uh, to 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 want to see more and like what more of this can we get? Right. Uh, and 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 I I think that that's a good way to lead into my next thing is like, uh, you know, we 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 talk about all this footage that may or may not exist or hypothetically it does who has this collection uh what what is it for you that makes this part of the hobby so intriguing besides just seeing stuff that we've only heard about i mean it's like i said with you know when i wrote the first time about what we're going to talk about in a few minutes the tom mcgee bret art match mm-hmm. pro wrestling is infinite effectively yeah it's it, there's there's been so much pro wrestling on TV or otherwise taped, and the people who would have been responsible for taping it aren't usually the people who would end up in control of the tapes or anything. That there's stuff out there and we don't know, and there's always going to be more stuff. And 
there are droughts. I mean, once the dollar DVD era really was in full swing, there was a long time after that where nothing new was coming out. Yeah. And I I think that also made me much more bored with older wrestling for a while. Even if there was still stuff I could find, it was just a little like, that's it? (laughs) So that this is finally happening again is a big deal. And one thing, you know, I'm sure will become a big part of this show that we should explain too, as far as Japan. So Japanese handhelds are coming out now in the West in a way we never really knew before. In, in, in a way that, uh, if I can just interject here, like I, I am a huge fan of handhelds. I, I don't know why. I, I think like b- besides, um, uh, like, B and C level TV shows for uh, like, you know, WWF and WCW type stuff. Handhelds are my second favorite thing to watch. Uh, I something about the fact that like you're getting to see something that was only meant for that crowd that night. Yeah. Like that to me, like, and, and, I also feel like handhelds, especially of house shows, uh, you get a more complete picture of how good a professional wrestler may or may not be. Right. Do they have a house show match, even if maybe they're not trying as physically hard? Right. Like, I mean, there there's guys that are just really good on house shows, and there's guys that kind of dog it, <laughs> you know? And to me, like... When, when when I see guys on like handheld house show footage, like really, like not wrestling any different than they were than they were if on TV, well, I think the world of that guy then because they they go out and they put the same effort in no matter what, and that's really what it should be about because you should be wrestling for the people in the arena, right? Or that, that that's the way I've always thought. Or even if they work in a way that's different but either better or different in a good way like sure yeah i mean the the current example i can kind of give now and i've, I've used this before you know obviously one's more experienced and that's part of it but tanahashi when he goes to the u.s and europe granted okada doesn't do it much tanahashi has so much more of a house show match that he can take it easier physically and it's still really enjoyable Whereas Okada yeah. is, has not really found his house show or spot show match or whatever you want to call it yet. So if he comes to the States and he's not doing an Okada main event, it's usually more disappointing than mm-hmm. a more reserved Tanahashi would be. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I think that is something that um, the the... The idea of the house show match, which is something that is certainly an idea, uh, certainly a factual thing that exists, uh, but but not a lot of people talk about that. You know, not a lot of people talk about somebody's ability to do their stuff on a house show and still be effective, but not kill themselves. You know what I mean? Like, there's that. There, y- you need that balance. And, uh, you know, that that's like when, when I see guys putting out that effort to have their house show match figured out where it's still something meaningful instead of just going through the motions and dogging it kind of 
that that's when you figure out, well, okay, well that that's a really good professional wrestler, you know. Now, as far yeah, as that, the handheld thing, oh, go ahead. No, no, that that was it. Oh, so with the handheld thing, um, okay, when did you first hear the whole thing about? Oh yeah, at every Japanese house show, there was always a fan with a visible camcorder. I, for some reason, I never heard that till a few years ago. See, I'm trying to figure out if it was something, I I don't think it was ever anything that I ever officially heard about until, like you said, a few years ago. Um, But I think it was something that I often thought about because of just how much, like, I would sit there in the late 90s, early 2000s, and just read John McAdams' tape website for hours on end. And there seemed to be just so much different Japanese stuff. And I always, like, just kind of, like, and I saw that they were, like, American handhelds, and there were a lot of them at that point in time. Well, not a lot at that point, but a good number. Because there's been a lot that have come out since then. But, like, there was a good number of American handhelds. And I kind of figured that there would be a good number of Japanese handhelds too, but I never had any proof of it. You know, it was just a theory that I had. And, and, and now we're finding out that it's true. Yeah, and even then, like, in the U.S., it seems like there were always, like, ups and downs to periods where they were available. Like, like if you look back as far as what's available, 92 and 93 seem like they're kind of the peak of American wrestling fans shooting house shows. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I don't know if it's a camcorder reportability thing. I don't know if it's people finding out about it more through the Observer or whatever and just doing it themselves. I don't know if security was different. It, is it just things converging? Whatever. Um, so Japan, I had heard that, but it was never really reflected in what we got here. But you always saw hints. There was that website years ago. And this is a long time ago. This is the first inkling I ever really got of it that had like awful quality, like 10 frames per second, maybe less, like Microsoft Netshow.asf files. The downloads, right? Yes, downloads of Japanese handheld matches and stuff that just was not available through any American that we had ever heard of. And Yeah, I vaguely remember this now. Okay, yes. go ahead. And eventually, like, some people we knew would like get like Japanese rarities compilations, but not a lot of stuff that had some of the, some of those matches on them. And mm-hmm. Then now it's really just seems like it's what the past two, three years, maybe even less that all of a sudden now there's just a deluge of people on Japanese auction sites that have them that are selling DVDs. Yeah. And, and you know what? I, and when I found out about that, I think was in a conversation with you. Uh, I think we were texting about, I think I came to you with a question that I saw about something, right? Um, Maybe. I think I may have seen somebody like maybe somebody say something on like Twitter or message board. And I was like, and and I, I remember I texted you and I said, what is this about and how can I get into it? 
And I, I, that's when I remember you told me about the Japanese auction sites and whatever. And, and I thought you were fucking ribbon, honestly. <laughs> really? Because, like, what do you mean Japanese auction sites that we – what? Like, that? it sounded too weird to me. But I was like, all right, whatever. And then when I got access, you know, to where that shit goes down – I was like, holy shit, we have hit the mother load. And apparently, like, like we've gotten a lot so far. Uh, like, they, they, like the, the, the amount of Japanese handhelds that have become available uh, to people in the West, if you can find them or whatever, uh, it's a lot more than we had in the past, right? Yes, that's like, it. Uh, <laughs> I would not be shocked at this point. Like, any match that you want to see that there's not a video of, basically, let's just say All Japan and New Japan to be conservative, from pretty much the early 80s through the late 90s, at least, maybe early 2000s. I mean, obviously, in the early 2000s, there's talks to be more TV, but still. Like, I would not be shocked if any of those were available. Right, because and because you also heard at a point, uh, once you heard about the 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 fact that Japanese fans would come, you, didn't you also hear or, or I I I I heard that it was like like encouraged like like they didn't care really the Japanese promotions that I knew, I right I'm like familiar with well okay I think I told you this story I should share it here I know I've told it to you yeah. a few times I think. Yeah. Okay, so going back, geez, this is like 2000. It, the early version of HighSpots.com was not just a store. They had a forum. There was, you know, it had the best, probably the best Lucha Libre forum there's ever been on the internet. Um, you know, they had a, even, you know, a tape trading and merchandise discussion. You know, various different wrestling forums. It was a really good forum. And there was a Japanese woman there. I don't remember her name. I've like I've tweeted at Rob Bahari and Rob O'Connor to see if they remember this. I should probably just nag them in DMs repeatedly to see if they remember. Because mm-hmm. they would have been there at that same time, yes. right? Yes, and yeah. they were regulars on the forum. I, I think this is even before. This is when they're already friends with Mike, but I think this is before they've ever actually done any work for High Spots. Oh, okay, but it would have been in the same general time frame, though, like within a few years, right? Like, because yes. they've been there forever, right? They went. I mean, they did it when they started offering the internships, which is like, well, I I, I know when it was because um, what year did the first Jamie Dundee shoot interview come out? Oh gosh. Uh, oh man, that's a tough. <laughs> it was, I mean, they've been doing DVDs for a while, so let's say yeah, oh five oh six. Right, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, but oh, but this is like early 2000s, so right, right this like this is like oh, 2000, 2001. Yeah. Okay. This this is what still when the DVD VR was uh green and yellow. Yes. So, I don't remember her name. If I'm just thinking it might have been Mayumi something. And she had a brother who apparently was one of the biggest tape traders and tape collectors in Japan. And <sighs> she would talk about how he would pay people, buy their tickets, pay them for their time, arm them with a camcorder to go to DDT and other indie shows to tape them for him so he would have them. And this is 2000 DDT. Yes. What the fuck? 
that. See, it's stories like that that makes like this thing that we're involved in so cool because you hear that there's stuff that exists. Maybe it's out there. Maybe. And at least for me, for me, it's that like I always want to see something that, like you said, nobody else has ever really seen before. I I want to experience that. I I because you know everybody talks about the 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 famous classics time and again, and for good reason. You know, everybody's got an opinion on Flair and Steamboat, right? But you could be one of the first people to see. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just gonna say like Satanico and El Dandy from fucking 1987 who knows i don't know i'm just making stuff up right something like that shows up out of the blue you're like oh man this is brent nobody has ever seen this this is awesome (laughs) i i want to watch this i want to talk about it i want to share it you know what i mean like that that to me is the coolest thing like seeing new stuff come out getting to watch it getting to talk about it getting to share it i don't know that that's what's cool about this to me. Yes. So before I guess we move on and talk about Bret Hart, Tom McGee, one thing I think we should also go over is collections that we know exist. And in this case, I'm really mainly just talking about people with just collections saved off TV that just we don't have access to for some reason. And also that make us pretty sure that there's even more people that just have stuff that don't know about tape trading that just taped a lot of stuff themselves. So I think th- this is mainly my area. I mean, you might have some stuff you can add, but mm-hmm. I mean, the main one and the, the most, I guess, like internet YouTube you one. Um, some of you might be familiar with the YouTube channel. I don't know if he's been updating it lately. There's a guy in Ontario, Ontario who has one called the W slash O slash C archive the with original commercials archive that's what he ended up naming it yes and uh, when he started the channel before he even named it he's going through this this and this is a tape collection he bought from someone i, I, I someone who followed me on twitter or the guy also knew who i was and someone had put me in touch with so i've emailed with him i could talk to him if i needed to he was putting up a decent amount of wrestling early on when he started putting stuff up and a lot of it was like it wasn't necessarily rare but it was it was stuff that was cool to see but there was one thing that really caught our eye which was a full episode of houston wrestling from december 1978 Mm -hmm. and they're like huh where's this coming from because everything everything else that he had posted wrestling and i think otherwise was um stuff taped in southern ontario stuff taped off toronto and hamilton ontario tv stations like in the mid to late 80s and they were, like, episodes of, like, uh, NWA Worldwide, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, just, like, uh, big two kind of TV, right? For lack of a better term. And it's cool. I mean, we could obviously certainly have more Canadian WWF TV than we have. There's probably stuff that we don't have that's out that could be out there. But right. That huge plus, with, plus with the commercials, you know, yeah. that's always a big selling point. Yes. But that 
seeing that Houston show was just so weird. So I get in touch with the guy. He bought this from someone who was a big tape trader and tape collector who had already sold his collection that was just wrestling. Mm. You know, this is a huge collection, like 500 tapes. Guy clearly went back forever if he had a full Houston wrestling show from 1978 that no one in the main wrestling tape trading community knew about. Had ever even heard or even thought of as a possibility. Right. Right. Of having... I mean, even now, does anyone have any other full Houston shows from any time period? Any full Houston TV episodes? I don't think so. No. I mean, the Houston that's out there is fairly, you know, the mid-80s stuff, there's a good amount of it, but I don't know if any of those are the full show. Anyway. Although, granted, I mean, in 78, it was still its own show. It was before it started being supplemented with wrestling from, you know, from, you know, Southwest or then Mid-South or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this guy he bought it from and he he's tried to talk with him. And I last I checked with him, I should probably shit again to see who he sold the wrestling collection to. And he wasn't really telling him, but that it's just it's so weird that like, you know, there is this huge collection, apparently stuff that people didn't even know was out there that got moved with no one knowing about it. And apparently it has some really cool shit. So that's out there. Yeah. And like, it's so funny how nobody like in the tape, tape, tape trading community or anything was like, so, uh, I just got 500 tapes. Hey, no one knows who this is. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like nobody ever arrived on the scene. Like that, or like that was already on the scene as like saying, Oh hey, check out what I got. Because I know, I know for a fact that if I was able to stumble on that find, I would make sure that I like got that shit out there and make sure. You would sure, tweet like, a picture of the open box within thirty seconds of the picture showing up at your door. <laughs> you damn right. <laughs> Hell yeah. Right. So there's that. There's the guy in the Knoxville area that was the original source of like. The, you know, the Knoxville All-Star Outlaw promotion stuff that's on YouTube. And mm-hmm. some other, st- like, there's a little bit of, I always forget if it's Columbus or Macon, that was airing in Knoxville when the Georgia Post was running Knoxville. And some Southeastern. And anyway, just different stuff. That... Did did Bo get stuff from him for that plan A, or am I thinking of something different? Bo put Bo recently put up on his pivot chair, and it's also I believe on high spots via pivot chair. Um, he had he has that stuff, but he had it from a different source that also has a little more, and that stuff is up now. I haven't watched it yet. Okay, but you know, yeah, me stuff. neither. But I, I just when you said Knoxville, I I thought of that. So I don't even remember the guy's name. There was a guy on the trading boards that who went by his username was X one three eight. He may have yeah. not even ever given his real name when he traded with people now that I think about it. Cause I remember seeing a package that said X one, three, eight on it. Oh, and that's so badass! I don't know if I ever did any dealings with him, but I know that's a, that's a hell of a legend right there. So this is a guy he would see at shows and stuff. And the guy had this apparently huge collection on beta, but he didn't have a, you know, the trader didn't have any beta stuff, so he hooked up with someone who did, and I, I think I had thrown my hat in the ring, like, for if there was more, that I would help transfer it since my 
my Nana had eventually given me her beta when she had no more use for it anymore. So I could basically have it for things like this. Yeah. And, um, he did one batch was apparently not really happy with how they came out for some reason. I have no idea why and never let anything out again, but no one knows who the guy is. And I don't think X one three eight is around anymore. I mean, like clearly he was saving a lot. So then there was, yeah. And then, and then you hear something like that and then you're like, ah, shit, dead end. Like, is that stuff ever going to get seen? Like, ah, and I have my own story like that, too. So the stuff is not as aggressively rare. There was a guy through a forum that I knew who he knew a guy with a big collection that wanted his stuff converted on that, you know, that was on beta. And he it seemed like he lived so, like somewhere enough in the middle of New Jersey that he got both Philly and New York TV. OK, so he yeah, it was mostly WWF, you know, some MSG shows off USA Network and MSG Network. Um, but the syndicated TV, like, it was some of it was missing local promos, unfortunately. But it was pretty close to complete shows, and he, you know, he sent me a bunch of tapes and the stuff. Oh, this stuff is great! You know, it looked great. I did the transfers. The transfers came out real good, and like it was clear. It was, and this was a guy who was clearly a serious collector because he was taping basically full shows in 1983, 1984. Oh, and he was taping Florida TV, you know, off the New Jersey station to the Spanish station. And he had them, like, he packed all of them in, like, these nice library cases. They weren't in the regular manufacturer's boxes. And same thing. He was inexplicably unhappy with how they came out and refused to do anything again. Plus, it was through an intermediary, so I had no idea who the guy was. So that's another one. If there are just a few guys like this, you know there are a zillion more. Yeah, so, like, what possibly is it about it that they could be unhappy with like i'm not even thinking about that part i'm just thinking about people who have stuff who aren't tape traders well right but like the the, the people it, it's it's more frustrating to me like okay it, it's one thing that people don't know that this is a thing right that that, it, that that's completely understandable because regular normal human beings don't obsess over shit like this no they, they they tape shows that they like. They might keep the tapes around. Whatever. Yeah. They, 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 for their own reasons, they might not know that other people want to see the stuff that they wanted to keep. You know? But that, I, would say, I would say if you're a tape everything person, it's a little weird that you don't think there are other people that would have interest in it. Yes, that's true. Like, I, if you're I, a I tape know. everything I, person, if you're not a tape, if you're just taping stuff from time to time, like, I'm sure there are even more people who are just taping stuff from time to time that still have it, too. Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. But then, like, there, but then it's more frustrating to me when there's these people, you know, you make these deals and you broker these things and you get some transfers done. And, like, because you're, you're obviously involved in the thing, you're, you, you kind of know what it's about. Like, what are you unhappy about? Like, what about this process did you not enjoy? Was it the part that meant you had to share your stuff? I, your selfish... That's kind of my gut, because there were people he used to encounter like this, too. There was one guy, I'll just say his name, because he didn't use his real name. Uh, there was a guy who went by Dr. Delaware who mm-hmm. had a lot of, I mean, he had a lot of WWF stuff, late 70s, early 80s, that he taped, mm-hmm. also on beta. Um, 
I want to say like his main thing that he had that a lot of people didn't was he had the prism shows from the Philly Spectrum that in real nice quality. Because mm-hmm. there were there were more people that had MSG because bigger market, but also if you had a satellite dish, you could get MSG, whereas you couldn't could never get Prism on satellite dish because Prism was only on cable. Right, of course. So he like his thing. He was a trader though, but in the you know pre DVD era. Because he knew he was the guy with the good quality stuff. He was like careful about who he traded with. And also seemed to get pissed off though if someone he traded with traded it to other people. Because that it, it mm. didn't look quite as nice, but it looked nice enough that you get the idea. Right. So I think some of it is hoarding and not in the hoarder sense, but in the like keeping. Like doesn't like that other people are t- seeing it. I I don't know what it is other than that. Yeah, it, which is a which is a mentality that I don't understand at all. Because when, when I was talking about why I like to do this and and watch this kind of stuff and and talk about it so much, is because I I like to share it with other people. You know, I, like I don't want to just it's mine. You can't have it. Well, what what what, what the hell's the point of that? If you can't share it and enjoy it with somebody else, right? Yeah. Where you're just going to be the only one to have it and not be able to talk to anybody about it? No, that's corny. That's whack. Like, don't... Like, what What do you gain from that? I don't know. I don't. Like, we're, we're all geeks about professional wrestling. Why don't we all just share whatever we got? Because I'm sure we all want to see it. I mean, if you're like me or you, you know, like... Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say that that kind of make that like that's kind of disheartening that like people have cool stuff and they don't want to share it, like just because they want to be the only people with it. Like, it's it's professional wrestling footage. It's not like a a a gold chain or a diamond ring or anything. You know what I mean? It's just yes, a wrestling match on tape. Like, let me watch it, <laughs> you know? Yes. So, on the other side of that equation, though, we've got Mary-Kate Anthony, me, Grasso, who, if you've seen the documentary, and I'm, if you're listening to this, yeah, by now, was who ended up with the tape of Bret Hart versus Tomagi that ended up making the deal with WWE, so WWE would have it and be able to release it. Um, If you're listening to this, I feel like you've probably read my articles and watch the documentary and stuff but still like we should, i feel like we should talk about the background and the hunt for this and all that when is the mm-hmm. first time you remember like really hearing about it for me i think it's the i think it's the observer that Meltzer wrote when he was doing the like wwf championship history that became the history of the wwf that became the history of wwf versus wcw when he wrote the first time he really wrote about it in depth, that's the first time I remember really hearing that there was like a legend to this. Like, I think I knew it had happened and I knew who Tom McGee was, but I didn't know like, Oh, Bret Hart did the most amazing carry carry job of a green wrestler in the history of planet earth until then. Yeah. Like I, I can't pinpoint exactly when I heard it, but I, but I feel like whenever I, you know, I, I it would it goes back a long time. I can't remember the first time I heard about it, but like for a long, long time, I remember people talking about this match. 
um, and there being a legend to it, likely due to the story that Dave did put out, and I probably heard about it through a, you know, 82nd hand, you know what I mean? But I, I knew that this match was something that a lot of people wanted to see, and for whatever reason, inexplicably, did not exist. Um, right. And for and 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 for me, like, like it, it's weird to me that like this one they didn't have for whatever reason, but we've seen other tryout matches. So it's not like they didn't keep tryout matches or did they start keeping tryout matches after this? Like, I don't know. Like, I I, I always tried to figure out why they didn't have this because it happened at a TV taping. Why wouldn't they have it? Right. I mean, okay. For starters, like, clearly, if nothing else, they didn't have a tape that it was on digitized already. But we know, this is the thing, like, I'm sure there's other stuff that maybe they might have done, sh- like, briefer, more cursory searches for that maybe wasn't where it was supposed to be. We know they've done deep searches repeatedly over the years to find this. Once this really right, became yeah, exactly. something of interest, they kept looking and looking. Once they did that set, you know, what is it now, two years ago, the, you know, unreleased 86 to 95, Mm-hmm. Which I would love for them to do a volume two because the packaging did say volume one. Yes, uh, but this is the same company <laughs> that did Shawn Michaels from the vault with from the vault, like the way it was packed, being making it clear that from the vault was going to be a series, and then there was never a volume, uh, never a yeah, from the vault. I thought that too, and I was kind of disappointed by that, but. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Okay. <laughs> right. I still want there to be a volume two, though. The, oh. the Roddy Piper unreleased coming out, that's going to be fucking cool. They, is, are there matches for that yet? I haven't uh, I don't think so. I'll check as we're discussing. Okay. But that really was the beginning of us get, having an idea of kind of, you know, what tryouts and stuff would look like. You know, that had a lot of just dark match stuff, too. And it, it seems like something that was like a dark match they would keep better track of of a star versus star match because um I lost my train of thought for a second, but because that could end up on a Coliseum video or whatever. Right. Whereas tryouts, a lot of the ones we've seen on these DVDs and on the network were clearly dumped to VHS and they don't have the master relative, excuse me, uh, readily available. So yeah. Yeah. Like, is this stuff sorted, weird? Like, you know, one of the theories that's been out there, I don't know how much in public, but I've heard talking about privately, is it possible that this was the VHS they dumped it to and someone just absentmindedly gave it to Brett? I mean, who who knows? I mean, I guess. I mean, hell, Jim, listen, Jim Cornette dived into a dumpster to save footage, okay? Not quite literally, but close. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but still. Uh, uh, th- that's something that very well could have happened. Somebody could have given a shit to Brett, you know? Because 
I don't think they were, but they weren't getting rid of stuff. I mean, we're talking about a company that had been pretty good about saving stuff since 1973. Yeah, no, I don't mean in the context of getting rid of it, but I just mean anything is possible, really. Sure. Like... We haven't seen the tape, the physical cassette shell, because, and whether there were labels on that, or because, like, the box that Mary-Kate had it in, which we saw in her original tweet, and they showed in the documentary, and uh, Stokely Hathaway holds in the <laughs> teaser video yeah, that well, they did for I mean, Reddit. They, sh- they, they showed half of the original tweet, by the way. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what was I saying? Um, oh, the box is like a 2002 vintage Maxell box. So that's not right. the original box it would have been in if that is the if that's the copy Brett got from WWE. There's no way that's the original box. It now is it is that a copy Marcy Engelstein made for herself, and then she sent that to Mary Kay to convert to DVD? I don't know. It's not because it's not. Well, it's not even clear to me were these Marcy's tapes or were these, were these Brett's tapes. I mean, not for nothing, it's definitely not first-gen quality. It doesn't look like it's dubbed off a broadcast tape, no. Right, so, I mean, it could be, like, it, you know, Marcy could have made a copy off of Brett's copy, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, although and then, then again, the VHS-sourced tryouts we've seen on the network before looked similar i mean i would say i would say it looks like maybe one generation removed from the other vhs we've seen on the network yeah that's what i mean like i mean it 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 doesn't look like it it looks like it's been like a dub of a dub so if somebody gave it to brett for instance and then somebody made a copy of that for marcy right then that's that's it yes marcy Engelstein. for those who don't know Brett's uh, fan club president, turned personal assistant, best friends with uh, Mary Kay to the point they call each other their sisters and was a maid of honor at her wedding. So anyway, uh, you know, and then there's the whole story. You know, Brett's book, I'm sure, helped, too, because Brett does go into pretty good detail about the match in his book. And the next thing after that was that, you know, Colt Cabana and uh, Rob Naylor being the ones who have talked about it publicly i'm guessing there were maybe other people who tried in the era of wwf developmental where you could order stuff from the office um they would constantly try to get that match and never get it um and they would get other shit too like they would get stuff that had never seen been in in front of the public so it's not like stuff was being withheld are there any examples of that or are we not privy to that information? Um, I'm privy to that information. I'm trying to figure out exactly what I can say. <laughs> Let's just say there are people that we know that, like, would ask, you know, they're, well, people you don't would ask to... them to check for stuff. Yes. Okay. People so would like, ask wrestlers to check. Right. Like, is, is there uh, somebody, uh, like, a wrestler that was popular? To get like footage requests from, or no, does it no, not no, really no, no. It was just there thing? were people who had friends that they would ask. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And I mean, there's stuff like you know from the unaired MSG shows that people saw and stuff like that. If that, if so, that that kind of thing. 
Oh, yes. Okay. Stuff that I want to see. Stuff that would be, like, super cool if they just dropped on a random Thursday on the network. Right? Right. Exactly. it exists. Yes. So, it's not like the stuff is being withheld. And all these idiots that keep tweeting or posting on Reddit that the Tom McGee match was in the WWF archive in the section labeled, Did You Not View, Copy, or Destroy... With the Owen Hart death and the Draws accident. Fuck off. No one ever said that. That's real. People were really trying oh, to say that, huh? Do you realize how many I've, people I've seen say that in the last six weeks? Where do you go? Why do people say that? Where I, are people saying that? I think, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if anyone actually willfully made it up as a lie. As much as people just wildly misinterpreted what Cabana said. Wow, that's like some like that's Mr. Fantastic levels of reaching right there, man. Like that like what the fuck like I don't even understand where you come to that thought process. Uh, these people. Uh, yeah. But I didn't see that. Like I don't I don't know where these people where those people are at. Are they all like Reddit or something? Like I mean I saw I saw people say that on Reddit, saw people say that on Twitter. Thank goodness I don't go to uh, Reddit with a W. And uh, I don't. I, I, I make a point to, to not go there except yeah. for certain things, like because I want to see what people, what more more casual but still hardcore fans think about stuff like Tom and Gate. You know what I mean? Like it's it's yes. useful for that type of thing. So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, where was I? So. What was available from Tom Mickey in the WWF already? There was the Terry Gibbs match from International Wrestling Challenge. Ter- Terry Gibbs being the wrestler that he was unfortunately booked with much of the time. Yeah. Um, there was Arn Boston. Anderson. Well, that was, but that's re- more recent. There was oh, the you ter- ju- oh, you mean historically? I'm starting with historically. So okay. There was the from the second run. There was the Tim Horner match from Boston Garden. And that was basically it, right? From yeah, MW. not not very much. A couple of things. Yes. Because so did did he even make did he make TV? He was never on regular WWF TV. He was never right. on American Weekly WWF TV. Exactly. Okay. There's the Boston yeah, Garden so... House Show on New England Sports Network, and there's one uh-huh. episode of International Wrestling Challenge, as far as English language TV. Right. That we had before. Well, I'm just saying English language TV. So wasn't then, the what was the Arn? Was that oh, not English? No. So this is something we actually probably should have talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember watching that match. I don't remember what language it was in though. That, that's a that problem that I, I have. I think that often. one's French. I always forget if it's French or Italian. Um, okay. There's just a shit ton of stuff that aired on like foreign language and even even just some foreign market WWF TV that just didn't show up anywhere else. Got yo, uh, fucking Brooklyn Brawler versus Janichiro Tenryu on Swedish WWF television is literally the most WCW pro match that WWF ever did. Right, and it was on Swedish television. Because Tenryu squashing the Brooklyn Brawler, and the only copy of it that's ever been in circulation is from Sweden. Yeah, dude, that that see, that's what that's the essence of this. When stuff like that comes out. That's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the king of that is Richard Land. Yes. Richard Land from the UK. Masked, wait, is it Masked Wrestler or Masked Wrestlers on Twitter? Let's see. 
mass wrestlers on Twitter. He is the king of this. He used to have YouTube channels that got killed when he decided to post Coliseum videos to them. Don't do that, everybody. Yeah, uh, stop doing that. And don't put network stuff on there either. And Or DVD stuff. No. He's the king, though, of finding this stuff and collecting it. Like, if someone just random dude posts, like, on his channel full of, like, home movies and random, like, Eurovision segments, he'll post, like, some foreign language WWF clips, Richard will message them and be like, hey, do you have anything else? Yeah. And so this is 2015 or 2016. One of these guys is like, hey, I have a match. I have one where it's Tom McGee and Arn Anderson. And Tom McGee wins by countout. And he asks me and some other people about this. Like, have you ever heard of this? I'm like, no. And that, that that's so weird, though. It's like, is he sure it's Arn Anderson? <laughs> like, he was saying, and then and Richard was saying the same thing. Like, uh, like no one's had any results from this and what we learned from this really and from some other stuff that's come out yeah including that unreleased some of the dark matches on that uh unreleased set people were not good about giving full results to wwf tv tapings for a, like i would say from like really the entirety of the expansion through at least through maybe the early early 90s yeah case in point that DiBiase match well, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. So, there's this Arn Anderson match, and this guy sends it to him, and it's real, and it's fun, and Arn does a very good job leading leading him to a fun match, although it's, you can see McGee's specific faults more than in the DiBiase or Brett matches, but it was easily the best Tom McGee match we had seen up to that point. Did, now, was... The Wajima match was out there by this. I mean, that was on already, TV right? when it happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the all all the all Japan stuff was out there. I mean, there might be a couple matches that aired later on classics that weren't on regular TV, but the all Japan matches that were out there were mostly already out there when they aired, and if not later on, in, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands on classics. But, but but the match where he's literally getting laughed at is is well has, yes that's yeah. it was voted worst match of the year in the Observer Awards that year. right. Right. So it okay, so we, we have this idea for a long time already that Tom McGee was a hopelessly bad wrestler with no aptitude for it, yes. Right. Yes. So there's that. So once Mary Kate tweets and people are talking about this, I don't even remember. Let's see if I can find the tweet. Uh God, I always forget what Waltman's Twitter handle is. The real X Pack. Okay. So let's see. From at the real X Pack, and I guess let's search for DiBiase. Yeah, because it was a reply, right? I think so. Um, I remember. When oh I, no! I, this I was first... before. This was before the Mary Kate thing. This was when Shane Helms tweeted the the gif of the ki- of the kicks to uh, Wajima in the corner. Oh, and then Sean said something about the DiBiase match. Yes. Yes. So. Um, he replies to Helms saying he had a dark match in Tampa with Ted DiBiase and I swore he was going to be the next big thing. Teddy was great. And no one knew this match existed either. It's, right. I always forget. It's either the night before or the night after the Hart match. 
because that's basically McGee's return to the WWF after being away for like a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And the DiBiase match, I think as a match, I think the DiBiase match might actually be the best of the three. I think so, actually. It's weird. I think the DiBiase match is the best match. I think Brett does a slightly better, a little bit better job at completely camouflaging him and making him look like a superstar. Yeah. I, I and, and I think the DiBiase match is a better match because McGee, at least at that point, had been wrestling a bit longer than he was right. in the Brett match. Right. So, like, yes, it's going to be a better match, but the better individual performance was definitely in the Brett match from Brett himself. Yes. But, I mean, McGee, I mean, excuse me, DiBiase is near Brett's level in terms of trying to figure this guy out, though. Mm-hmm. Watch it, like, I, I feel like I don't normally watch too much with, like, a like a wrestler's type eye with stuff, but I feel like I do with the McGee matches because I'm watching to see how these guys are trying to carry him because McGee was bad in such a specific way. Mm. Like, okay, he can't punch, he can't kick, he can't chop. He can't really sell either because he sells kind of flopping around. Yeah. And he's a great athlete, but he's not he's not bad in the way you would expect a great athlete who doesn't get wrestling to be bad. It's 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 a puzzle in a way yeah. that mm-hmm. a lot of green or bad guys wouldn't be. So he, like go ahead. I like he's kind of bad in the same way, but differently than but in different in the same fashion, but in different ways as the Ultimate Warrior. Kind of. I mean, in a way, you could almost make the comparison of Jim Wilson, because Jim Wilson's another great athlete. See, I've never really seen much. Of, I, I've never seen. I don't think I've ever seen a Jim Wilson match, honestly. Okay, if the I if the IWA shows are online somewhere, because the best example is the Ernie Ladd match. Cause okay. Is, is the, let's see. What year is that from? That's 75, 76. Um, I might have to ask my friends, my friend who is at a loss for words if he is. Okay. If he has that available. The one that's still on YouTube right now is Alibaba and Kay Casey in a mixed tag against Jim Wilson and Sheila Reeves from IWA. And, like, here's the thing. He's an NFL caliber athlete. Oh, yeah. He does not move like an NFL caliber athlete. And he just okay. also doesn't have any aptitude for pro wrestling either. So he's he's bad in similar ways, but he's not the spectacular specimen. Because, you know, he's also been through football, but still, he's not he's not the spectacular specimen doing backflips and stuff that Tom McGee is. But I feel like that there's kind of that comparison there. But anyway. Yeah, you, yeah. I was just think, I was just thinking in terms of like with the warrior, like, yeah, there's not much he can do, but he can do some power shit. Whereas sure. like like McGee, yeah, there's not much he can do, but he can do some cool athletic shit. You know what I mean? Like, there's not much wrestling aptitude there, but there's something there to yes. them. And with McGee, though, he seems like a nice guy who had a good attitude. So my gut is is that if they put him with the right guys, with the right mi- mindset, he probably would have improved in the ways Warrior didn't. Now, I'm curious. He seems like a good dude with a good attitude now. But then. 
I mean, was you he... look at those newspaper articles I found, he seems like the same dude. He okay. is, it seems like his attitude is, if wrestling goes well, great. If not, I'm happy with my success in powerlifting and stuff, and I can go and do something else. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe that kind of attitude is what, like, maybe rub people the wrong way. You got to remember, like, 30 fucking years ago yeah. in wrestling, that kind of attitude might not have been cool. You know, they they might like the fact that maybe that he wasn't all in on like, yeah, wrestling is my end all be all. Maybe they were like, well, fuck this guy. We don't like his attitude. You know, because you know what? Sometimes in wrestling, I I know this full well. A lot of times, sometimes people uh, a lot of times in wrestling, people say, I don't like their attitude when the person has a perfectly fine attitude but they just don't agree with the way that they conduct themselves or right. the way that they handle business. And, and I don't like their attitude. I'm doing air quotes here is just a catch all uh, cop out excuse for them to shit on somebody because they don't share the same views or merits. You know what I mean? Like right. that could be a real, but that could be a thing that happened back in the day. Especially with somebody who was saying that kind of stuff. How was he saying that around other wrestlers? I don't know. But mm, but uh, maybe. Or maybe they saw the way he carried himself, like, in that way. Like, just the way Tommy Gee would carry himself. Not saying it's a positive or a negative. But they would see him carrying himself that way and think that he's an asshole for some reason. That's, yes. It's not unlike a professional wrestler to think in that way. No, it's not. And I mean, well, it's also like, okay, Lex Luger was a condescending asshole and he admits it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what got at Lex Luger heat was not him being a condescending asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it was like having an agent and negotiating a good contract for himself. Like, that's not his fault. Yeah. Oh, fuck you, man, for trying to get a little more money and acting and treating this professional sport as if it's a professional sport. Right. Come on. Right. And, but I think Luger's a comparison <laughs> too, though, because Luger oh, yeah. was a tremendous athlete who looked like he was carved out of stone, who wasn't really a wrestling fan, but Luger was immersed with great workers from the beginning and did like, it took some time for him to get really good, but like Luger was never hopeless. Yeah, he he didn't necessarily take like a fish to water, more so like a kid that had to wear like uh, 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 water wings for a little while until he was comfortable. And then he started swimming like a beast because, you know, that 84, 85 stuff from Lex Luger isn't setting the world on fire. I mean, even though he looked like an absolute specimen, but you know, he wasn't lighting things on fire in the ring, but once you got to 88 or 89, my man's cooking. My man's out there swimming. He doesn't need any water wings. He's going. Exactly. Right. He just needed a little bit of time. Some people need that time. And maybe if Tom McGee was surrounded by the right people that could guide him the right way instead of... Listen, I mean, I don't... One, uh, he's probably a hell of a nice guy, but for this project, Terry Gibbs is a fucking scrub. No, yeah, like, exactly. Like he—he's not the guy you put him with, like that often. 
Like, I mean, there were times that he was in there with, like, he was in there with, like, Ron Bass, uh, Iron Mike Sharp. I mean, I think... He's in there with, like, good hands at the best. Yeah. Like, there was a dark match that he had with Magnificent Morocco when I was checking his cage match profile. We, You know, but Magnificent Morocco at that point in time, huh, who knows? You know what I mean? Like, like does, right. Does not Morocco care enough to want to teach this guy? Exactly. Or does and he just want to light one up when he gets back to his hotel room and that's all he's thinking about the whole time? Especially because he was going under, you know? <laughs> uh, so, like, I, you know, I I say about Tom McGee, and I guess we'll talk about the match uh, after this, uh, but, like, Tom McGee, I like to think of, this might be a little bit weird, but like sort of like Goldberg in that uh, like Goldberg, um, I think would have been a better, would have been better suited for actual professional wrestling. If that makes any sense, if he wasn't brought up in the culture of late nineties, WCW where politics were just out of control. I mean, doesn't he basically admit that he was kind of an asshole in WCW because Nash was trying to mentor him? Yeah. I, I think if Goldberg, I think if Bill Goldberg, exactly the way that he showed up in September 97, uh, on TV. Well, I mean, I guess he showed up earlier than that, uh, that was uh, horseshoe. <laughs> what the match with Hector Guerrero? Uh, no, that was a dark match. Did he win or lose? I think he did lose. See, that's got to be the next thing. We got to uh, talk to John Carlo. Uh, we got to uh, talk to John Carlo about getting Bill Gold versus uh, Hector Guerrero on the network. Bill Gold maybe loses to Hector Guerrero on WCW Pro Dark Match. Oh, but, uh, man, I'm looking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, but, uh, I, I didn't pull up his cage match. I went to historywwe.com. Okay, Buddy Lee okay. Parker. That's probably his first match because it's his trainer. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> What's probably his second match? Who did you think Bill Goldberg? T- probable second matches. No, this, this never aired. Oh, so a house show? Or is it that like It's the, a dark uh, match at a Saturday night taping. Okay, so it might exist. So it might exist, but who do you think? Oh, God. Okay, what month is this, 97? You're you're not looking. Uh, No, I'm not. It's June 97 at a Dalton, Georgia Saturday night taping. Dalton was where they were taping it a lot back then, right? June 97. Yeah, I think so. uh, It's not someone who's on the WCW roster either. Oh, God. Uh, Fuck. (laughs) I have no idea. That would be Nature Boy Buddy Landell. What? No. Okay. So Wait then, a second. Yeah. If that's at a Saturday night take... See, this has always been one of my uh, biggest requests for a WWF Network show is the WCW cripping, uh, clipping room floor. Oh, Just, yeah. Oh, I was... Li- <laughs> Unaired WCW stuff. I need to see it. Oh, like no, I was I was kind of talking someone's ear off about that the other day. Like, no, we need Ric Flair talking about Mister Perfect, who's actually still under contract in the WWF. We yes. need we need uh, Sid as WCW champion. We need 
Johnny uh -huh. Attitude managing Harlem Heat. We need the oh, Giant saw, as I, a babyface uh, managed by the Clipmaster. What? Yeah, there was something about that. You you put that on Twitter I the other day. I about that, too. But yeah, also, yeah. I talked to someone about it. I'm like, yeah, like, this stuff needs to see the light of day. And you know what? Hopefully, uh, you know, with all this stuff that's coming to light, especially with the way Hidden Gems has been hidden mm -hmm. for the past little while. Oh, yeah. I mean, for the past several months, they have just stopped putting up bullshit developmental matches that people have seen yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, uh, they, they've really started getting their shit together in terms of that. Uh, they're doing cool stuff with that Bret Hart-Tom McGee match. Uh, yeah, that even put up as a hidden gem. And the thing is, I hope, I, I, I'd be curious to see what the numbers for that have been since it's been released. The amount of people who watch it live and the amount of people who watch it VOD, I don't know if we can get facts or figures on that. But if it was well-received in terms of amount of viewers, I would really hope that WWF really takes note of that. I mean, they've been doing really well with the with the unreleased projects that they've been doing. I mean, the Randy Savage one wasn't so hot. I mean, it had some cool stuff. Uh, the Shawn Michaels one looks cool. The Roddy Piper one, I mean, who knows what that'll have. The 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 86 through 95 set was really fucking cool. Um, the hidden gems have been hitting. Uh, they've been doing cool stuff. And with, with, if this stuff continues, you know, if it's catching on, if it's popular, if people are watching and talking about this stuff, hopefully they'll do more. Hopefully they'll realize there is more of a market for stuff like this for us nerds that want to watch this kind of stuff that has never been seen before. Yes. I just... Just from views on articles I've written about Brett and McGee on Deadspin, the interest is shockingly high. I mean, I guess that will speak to the to uh, just how how well social media is penetrating now, because they made a they made a big deal about this. You know, WWF did, and to, I, I tweeted this the other day that. Um, I, I kind of felt it was weird that um, this McGee-Brett Hart match was getting a lot more press than, in, especially in wrestling circles, than I felt that last battle of Atlanta did. I think things have changed a little bit in the last few years, but... Yeah. Well, also, last battle of Atlanta, <clears throat> I think that was also a little different because it just showed up out of nowhere. No one really had any idea it was on video. There was like, well, they were shooting the house shows, you know, around that time. We know WWE yeah. has some of those, so you knew that, like, you knew if that if you knew if it was shot, WWE probably had it, right? But we had no idea. It was the thing was because they never show clips on TV or anything. That, that right. That was that was the part that always kind of threw everyone that they didn't show a frame of it. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it there was no build up. So here it was like we knew this had to be on video. We knew there were people outside of WWE who had the video. So there was already that anticipation. Then Mary Kate finds it. Then we get another six weeks, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you think you think more people knew about this initially being a thing than maybe Last Battle of I Atlanta, think that perhaps? I too, but I think also 
there was kind of this anticipation being built up once we from knowing it existed too. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I remember when they announced that they were going to put Last Battle of Atlanta up, and it was only like a couple of days that really that people really had any kind of time to prepare. Yes. Like, wait, what? What's happening? Well, and we had I no. Re- go ahead. I, me personally, when they dropped that news, that was mind blowing to me because I think I knew. I think I heard about Last Battle of Atlanta before the McGee heart match. I think there was deeper internet. Oh yeah. Lore oh yeah. I think so. To, seeing in the magazines and stuff. Yeah. There, to me, there was deeper internet lore to last battle of Atlanta than there was to the McGee heart match. And like, I remember when they dropped that new, cause this is when they did what their second or third mass drop of hidden gems. Ooh. I want to say it was their second. I think it was the second. That sounds right. And they that's when they put up like 20 at a time or whatever. And they put that. I was like, what? I, I couldn't believe it because I heard about this match for so long. And 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 for their to, to, to go from this was not taped at all to. Oh yeah, we're putting it up Thursday. That was insane to me. Even more so than this McGee Hart match. Okay, we know it might have been taped. We know it was taped, but uh, we don't know where the tape is. Oh, we found it. The fact that they found it, that Mary Kate found the tape, was awesome. But it didn't hit me in the gut like Last Battle of Atlanta did. Yeah, although. But again, like by that point, it seems. But but also, if Meltzer wasn't finding his copy because whatever you know, whatever he said, like his wife told him to get the tapes out of the house and in, into the unrefrigerated shed in California, outside the Man, house. Man, them tapes are them tapes are still good. I swear. Give them I, a little. Give them a little TLC. They're still good. I'm, I, I'm worried. I'm to it, try. Wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if they're fine. But I I have concerns about Dave's tape collection. I absolutely do. How how has he not tried to monetize this or something already? Well, also you have you're you're a fairly well off dude. Like, get a find just a storage place or something that can be that has air conditioning. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Like, you know, keep your Japanese magazines there. That's fine. <laughs> right. They're not gonna. They're not gonna melt. Yes, it's like, like, dude, did you ever go to a video store that had the melted tape on the counter? Like, uh, yeah, come on, Dave. Like, <laughs> like you live in California. They clearly had those. Dude, talk about people with fucking collections, bro. Fuck. Meltzer's probably got, who knows? Who knows what he's got? I mean, it, well, the thing with Dave is like, so he's when, he probably got sent stuff from people that he never even watched and has no clue what's on it, and it's like ridiculous. But you know, did he here's my I do have some concern. Like when he would make his compilations, like his Japanese TV compilations, was he keeping the full shows and stuff, or was he getting rid of those or taping over them or something? Making like making perm tapes out I, of my guess would be that he did keep everything because I mean. Dude seems like he has some mild order tendencies. 
Uh, I've seen pictures of that's what his I said computer mild. room. I said mild. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't... This, so that's the thing. We're talking about a guy who probably does have, like, a ton of full Georgia championship wrestling shows and stuff that isn't happening. I bet. I fucking bet. Like, uh, has he said when he got his VCR? Exactly. <sighs> I want to say but... it's 79 at the latest. God, imagine that. Where is he living in 79? I mean, he was in San Jose. So what's, what's San Jose near? What what California company was he getting TV of? I mean, so you know. the Sire was still kind of running the... So he pro- I mean, he probably has... Oh, yeah, San Jose is up by San Francisco. Right, so now also... Then so that, was the... that would be Shire's TV. And then when was the Amarillo office running... Northern California was that seventy eight or seventy nine? Oh, uh, uh, one of those. But it's one of those. Uh, yeah, he might have some of. The, he might have maybe much out there too. God, how much is there? Any Amarillo television? Is there like one episode? There's like a couple hours from the Northern California stuff. Oh my god! And it's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, I, I know it is, but, like, that's it. That's literally whole, it. That's literally that's the whole okay, thing. Well, okay, and there's one Dory Funk Jr. match from when he was champ that got sent around to other territories. Okay, Against yeah. Against Race and, Bannon. And, and that's likely not taped from Amaro TV. That's probably from somewhere that it got cycled right, to. Right, like, I think, like, the one that's around is from, like, Detroit or George Cannon TV or something. Yeah. Oh, God, there's just so much there's so much potential stuff you know like it's almost thinking about the potential stuff is more exciting than the stuff there actually might be you know all right anyway Ugh. tom mcgee where how did we get there from tom mcgee oh we were talking about oh, like, wow. atlanta and stuff somehow yeah, um, yeah that's how this goes yes so i think we I mean, we we also got off track where we were going to talk about like how the who how they carried him it's like briefly like like I said, I've watched, I felt like, I feel like I have more of a wrestler type eye for Tom McGee matches than I do for other stuff. So it's like, I'm like, oh. Well, because it's more, it's more of a thought in your mind. You want to see how do they do this? Yes, exactly. So instead of, oh, I'm just going to watch the wrestling. So, right. You know, I'm curious. Did you have the same thought as me? I see DiBiase's chopping more than usual. And I'm like, he's doing it. So McGee doesn't have to sell. That's brilliant. <laughs> he just yeah, has to react yeah, to Chops fucking hurting. Yeah. Uh, and, and he's not selling. He's just actually reacting. Yes. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention that, uh, that does make a ton of... Like, it's not something that, like, I hit on while watching, but as I think about the match, ooh, that's probably it. Because, you know, that's one of those things you have to know how to, uh, you know, accentuate strengths and hide weaknesses. So Ted, being the technician that he is, uh, knowing that his opponent isn't really good at selling strikes, believably, knowing that he has a good chop, knowing that he also has Teddy Biasi, uh, I feel like not a lot of people talk about his punches anymore. They but know. His... TWS had amazing punches, but right. I wouldn't he... trust 1988 Tom McGee to sell those punches. Right. That's what that that's the point I'm about to make is that Teddy Biasi could have been throwing his great punches, 
but he likely knows that he can't trust the other guy to sell him like he needs to. So fuck it. I'm just going to chop the guy. Yeah. That's, that's really good. That's, that's probably really good analysis picks. I like that. Thank you. And then Brett, to me, it seems like he was like, okay, I can't really have this guy sell while he's standing. So you're not really going to strike. And if you do something, you need to get him down and you need him to sell at all. He's got to sell on the ground because it seems like he at least gets, he does it. He, he's not going to be as demonstrative there and not as trying to trying as hard if he's on the ground and not as overly pantomiming, like overly acty, like, Ooh, this hurt. Like, yeah, I I get it. Yeah. And I felt like the other thing was he, it, it seems like he didn't necessarily tell him to die on him, but he told him to get as close as he could while still selling. Do you think he told him that, or do you think that's just the way... Or do I think he just structured the match in a way where McGee would only be doing certain things? I mean, from from the documentary, from the documentary, to me it seemed like Brett was saying, okay, like he literally said in the documentary, tell me your three best things. And it seemed like him fitting those three good things in and... You know, yeah, like fitting like... fitting those things in where applicable, and then fucking making him like kind of sell down in the meantime. Yeah, I, I can I can go with that, but also McGee does seem like he was kind of self aware. Like he knew what he he knew the stuff that didn't look good didn't look good. I think because he. He's, you know, he's asked what's your best stuff. He knows what his best stuff is. He's not suggesting anything. He doesn't think he's better at certain things than he is. So. Right. And, and and to his credit, he knew his best shit. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. He knew his best shit was his um, flippy athletic stuff. Yes. Flip, basically flips cradles to an extent drop kicks because it, it didn't seem like he really knew how to do them in a pro wrestling way. So it's like they didn't quite. He it's, he'd never really connect kind of with both feet at the same time, but they look they still look fine. Like yeah. they didn't look bad. And well, because uh, I'd say like uh, his three his three big spots. Like if we're gonna limit it to three, there was the the cartwheel backflip arm drag. Yes. There was the uh, the backflip off the top rope, like he did with in the DiBiase match. Yes. And then there's the going over Brett into the ring to do the O'Connor roll. Right. Those were his big three. Yes. Which, you know, yeah, that's, that's pretty flippy athletic stuff, especially for a guy of his build. Wow. And his size and everything. I mean, like at that time, especially he's basically, he's basically Doug Furness with a better physique and the opposite aptitude for wrestling. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yep. Hey, think about it. Like they, he's basically like, that like it, combination it, it, of athletic if, gifts. Yeah, if Doug Furness was a gymnast instead of a power lifter. Well, he was a pa- but but Tom McGee was a power lifter. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, like Doug Furness, uh, Tom McGee wrestled like a gymnast no, instead of a power Tom, wrestler. Tom, when when Doug Furness was more like kind of power wrestler more so than gymnast. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Tom McGee. Okay, I think it's this. Tom McGee had the gymnastics and the martial arts, whereas Furness also had the football, 
and I think maybe McGee was then was leaning into like, oh, I know performing to a degree from gymnastics and karate. So uh-huh. maybe that's kind of why it, it he's kind of, I don't know, too like balletic when he shouldn't be. Yeah. So, I mean, but you get what I'm saying. Like, as athletes, they're kind of the same guy. Yeah. And, and when, when he's, uh, some, uh, what you just said sparked something to me when, when, when you said, uh, he had the performance, like the gymnast performance, uh, I've never really seen anybody hit a cartwheel into a back handspring as if they were in a gymnast routine, the way Tom McGee did in his match with Brett. Right. You know, it was like, he got him down and he was like, I'm going to do this cool thing. Uh, right now to celebrate, you're going to charge me and I'm going to take you down. You, you know, like it, it, like it kind of, if they didn't follow that specific thing up with what they did, the arm drag, mm-hmm. it would look really out of place. I feel like that specific thing, that cartwheel backhand right. spring you do thing, that kind of flippy thing. It's like, you have to punctuate it with boom wrestling move. And that's what Brett right. made him do. Yeah, and that that is another part of the wrestling genius I feel like that goes into that match and that it what like yes, it was acrobat acrobatic to be acrobatic, but at the same time you ended the sentence with the wrestling exclamation mark. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so like you accentuated the strength that he had, that athleticism, the the acrobatic, but you still said, okay, we're wrestling here. So it's because, right. Cause then like the flips are just kind of like a, ha ha, fuck you. Come here. I'll fuck you up now and arm drag you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I thought that, I thought that was a really cool part of it. And they, and they didn't take a lot of time making, like they didn't draw it out or anything. They kept their thing moving. You know, a lot of times you, you see something like that these days, they would kind of, draw something like that out and have a big dramatic pose. Like when, when, like I could just imagine Tom McGee doing that, uh, cartwheel backflip in front of a 2019 new Japan production thing. Mm -hmm. And they would want to probably like get a zoom in on his face and pan around and do something crazy with the cameras before the arm drag comes, you, you know what I mean? Like they yes. kind of overdo it sometimes with that shit. And it, it takes you out of the moment because you know that the camera people are prepared to get that shot. And while yes, it is a cool shot. You're like, Oh, they're fucking ready for it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Osprey doing the flipping exactly. out of the superplex thing, like yeah, twice man. in three weeks in big matches yeah man and, fuck and that the surprise thing. yeah which i it's because it is a brilliant spot but it's like he did it back and back to back big matches yeah like that's supposed to be a something that you do once in a lifetime or right. you know anyway, but <laughs> but as far as you you you, McGee, you, yes. you get what i mean like yes, they made exactly. something like that into something that was credible within the confines of that match exactly so i, I think the I, like, I feel like the way they were trying to do things doesn't differ that much. I just think Brett, the thing is, like, also, the Brett matches multiple cameras with commentary, which we should get into that in a second. But 
you're able to see the whole match better than you are the DiBiase match, which is just the hard cam too. And right. Just kind of, you know, kind of that zoomed out tryout match hard cam. And, you know, there's the thing I tweeted the video of, and I didn't even did like my edited video to really point it out. Brett's patience when McGee messes up. So the big obvious one, there are other times where the timing is off, but it's not a big deal. So big transition to get away from the heat and get to McGee comeback is Brett is doing his second rope elbow. McGee moves, he messes, McGee makes his Mm -hmm. comeback. And the way you really know, know this, even if you're not looking at a thing McGee is doing, is Brett does his back first elbow drop, which he only does if he's missing it. Which is, right. in the style of a Bret Hart match, really, like, the only big, like, this is a work tell he has. Yeah, it is a Like, in terms tell, of the yeah. psychology of the match, I should say. Like, because it's pro wrestling, certain things, you know, look like a work. But in terms of the way he lays out his matches... But it's 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 the one thing that he switches up depending on if he's hitting or missing. And he really did not do it that much after he turned babyface, anyway. Mm-hmm. First time, like you really see it the most most in heel heart foundation era match. Well, you know, he you probably realized that. Yes, at some point along Parker. the way. Yes, yeah, yeah. But at that point in time, yeah, yeah exactly. And like you even watched too. Um, like when I was looking, trying to find clips of that spot or of the different versions of the elbow drop to make that video, I'm looking on YouTube. There was one, it might be his MSG debut, and I forget who he's wrestling, but like the guy's out of position, and Brett just does the has to do the back first version to land it clean. Mm. So that's kind of the exception, but anyway, he does that. So even if you weren't looking at McGee, you realize McGee's probably supposed to move. You look at McGee, McGee flinches and starts to move and realized he fucked up his timing and just lays there. Yep. Brett doesn't lose his temper. Brett just talks to him, gets, you know, goes through a couple other spots, goes to the corner, calls a spot. McGee is so green that he visibly nods, nods. to acknowledge that he heard, that he's ready. Dude. Okay, a funny thing about that. Which, by uh, the way, too. I feel like that says a lot about Tom McGee as the the guy that it feels like he's just charming, just this nice, charming guy who's just being deferent to the veteran wrestler. Yeah, he's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> he's like, like he's just like talking to his neighbor. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, he's like, oh yeah, 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 I can do that for you. I can mow your lawn. Yeah, yeah, sure, I can. And he's just shaking his head all about. But uh well that's also in... not the second thing that he was supposed that's all excuse me, not the first thing he was supposed to get out of the way of in the match that he did. True. Because true. Brett does the Brett standing leg drop earlier and very nearly fucks him up with it because Mickey doesn't move right out of the way the way he should have. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I was just gonna, about the nod thing. I'm guilty of doing that once in May of 2010 when <laughs> um uh it it was Force One and this is uh we had Brody Lee come in. We did we, yeah May of 2010 we ran uh Brody Lee versus uh Nick Gage that match banged by the way. Uh, but anyway, I was like the commissioner of Force One at the time. And uh, Brody Lee had turned on Force One to join the evil new regime. And, like, I was in the ring for it. This and, is the uh, stupidest, like, most indie authority figure booking I've ever heard. 
Oh yeah, of course. So then uh, Brody Lee grabs me out of the corner. And, was like, what's his face from up. Frontier there coming out to No Chance in Hell too? No, unfortunately not. Oh wait, who was that? Wait, Drew Lazario was a wrestler. Who was the guy? Who was the guy who was the evil authority figure in FW? I I forget, man. Uh, I know what you're talking. I just forget. In Frontier, you said right. In, in in the Mike Burns promotion, Smart Mark promotion, yes. Yeah, uh, you know I haven't watched very many of their full shows. I just have. Uh, I watched a lot of the uh, the compilation that Smart Mark put out like ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I've only recently started dipping into it on IWTV. It's true uh, something. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, but I I can't. I don't have that cachet readily available because uh, I'll tell you, I don't think that manager made that best of very many times. No, but he's in uh, the angle before Quack and Eno Del Santo. Is that? I'm trying to remember if that was even on the. That's thing that oh, I that's have. definitely on the best of. Is it? You don't think Quack and Eno Del Santo is on the best of? No, I know Quack and El Hio Del Santo is. But is the angle proceeding because on there? Because the angle, remember, the angle is like, oh, is Quack reti- staying retired? Because Quack, because Quack had literally just decided to retire like the day before they called. Oh, him to I say they had El Santo, El Yo Santo. I might have just fast forwarded then. Well, and like, I, like, I just so I Quack, remember yes. seeing the match, but but anyway, I, I can't I can't remember the guy. Anyway, but yes, I mentioned that. But, uh, that's that's like my benchmark for indiest like shitty end of in the authority figure because he actually comes out to no chance in hell in the year 2000 fantastic absolutely fantastic but uh brody grabbed me by the neck by, by the throat like he was supposed to and uh nick gage is gonna come interrupt it um but nick gage was like at the commentary table and uh it took him like a little bit like, and by by, it took him a little longer to get to the ring than anticipated. We mean this by like four or five seconds. You know how things like in yes. wrestling are. Hold on, I gotta save this fucking pussy. And uh, yeah, and uh, I, you can see it on the video. Brody Lee, as he has me goozled, he looks over at me. You can't see him ask me, but he says, "Do you know how to bump?" <laughs> and I then respond to him by saying yes. But you nod your head. And I nod my head as I say it, which you can see on video. And I'm literally one second away from about from posting on him so he can choke slam me. But Nick Gage luckily hopped the guardrail at that exact point in time. So he just tossed me down and I didn't have to take a choke slam because not only was I the authority figure commissioner, but I was also the ring announcer and commentator. So if I got bumped after the second segment of the night, it would have been really weird. <laughs> <laughs> You could have just come out and pack out in a mask. Yeah, right. Fuck. Hey, everybody, it's Excalibur. <laughs> not the way my voice is sounding tonight. You hear that? I'm like, no, raspy. not tonight. Yeah, I'm very no, you raspy sound much tonight. More, you sound it's much more clear tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you do realize once he's on TV, you're going to get a lot more commentary work. Oh, I hope so. That <laughs> that's going to be the best part of AEW for me, pal. <laughs> All right, oh, so boy. Eddie. Okay, so we have anything else to say about Bret Hart versus Tom McGee? Um, uh, I, my one thing to say about it is uh, somebody. 
uh, th- this is my comedic point of the night. Uh, somebody obviously ribbed Tom McGee and told him that his under trunks were enough. Because my man is out there wearing some skimpy, skimpy undies. Okay, so in the 88-89 matches, his later matches, is he wearing, like, two... I don't remember. Of... <sighs> okay, do you want me to pull up Tom McGee versus Arnie Anderson and see if you can tell whether or not he's Jewish or not? <laughs> Oh man! Okay. But his his trunks were really really small. They they were very small. They they might have been sm- like even smaller than what Chris Dickinson wears now. Oh, they were absolutely smaller than what Chris Dickinson wears. <laughs> Chris Dickinson's trunks still look like regular wrestling trunks. I know, but they're small with okay. very with very long. Um, uh, what is what is it called? Elastic. The elastic band, yes, or whatever. Well, or the, the uh, string, oh, the drawstring in a strong. The drawstring, yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember the word drawstring. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I at like this that. Point, I'll, I'll ask him the next time I see him. I'm pretty sure he's just he has that knock tucked it back into his trunks as a, as a thing. He's clearly yeah. doing it on purpose. Oh yeah, I know. Okay, so yeah. the arm match, I forgot. He is wearing white trunks. Yeah, because I do remember that. Yes, although I hate to say, Jim Barnett is not in the company at this point. Um, oh, he has white I... boots with red trim, which that was an actual thing he'd say, people. That's it's not a Jim Barnett gay joke. He'd actually suggest that. Um, okay, <laughs> he's wearing regular wrestling trunks though, or two sets of trunks or whatever. He is he is in normal gear. You're not seeing every inch of his penis. Yeah, it really looked like he was wearing like customs trunks in in his match with Brett. Yes. And then when Brett pitched him out of the ring by his trunks, I was like, oh, man, there is a lot more of Tom McGee to be seen now. Like, not that I'm bothered by it. I just thought it was funny that his gear was obviously way too small. Right? Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I get it. It's a body business. <laughs> Show it off. But uh, it was a bit like it, it took me aback a bit. I was like, "Oh, we're watching this for the next little bit." All right. Okay. So, <laughs> DiBiase. I don't know if it's the same exact gear from the night before slash night after, but it's same white gear. And okay, so now let's look at Terry Gibbs from '87. See if he had actually gotten real gear by then. All right. Uh oh, there are two copies of this match. Let's see. Okay, oh, the right. He's wearing black in this, and those are some very skimpy trunks. Hmm. Interesting. Several months later. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, that does remind me, though. Okay, in the. Is he wearing the red and yellow in the Brett match? He's wearing red trunks, for sure. Yeah, I think he's wearing yellow boots. And. Probably, yeah. He is wearing. He is also super jacked and cut up here in the, in the Terry Gibbs match, too. He looks. Re- like he looks like a human action figure here, awesome. and <laughs> um, what was I saying though? So, I I wonder if the red and yellow was a WWF thing. In terms of like superhero colors, uh, yeah, brother. Mm, well, I mean, like as in brother, brother. Well, like so, Hogan. Used to wear different colors, and then they made him red and yellow. Right. 
I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm curious when the actual last non-red and yellow Hogan matches in the WWF, too. I want to say like 86 sometime. But earlier in 86 than... Earlier. Yeah. I would say like first quarter 86. Okay. Yeah, I don't, uh, I, I, I've wondered... The first guess. But yeah, I've wondered how they settled on that anyway. But I, I, yeah, I was curious about that and then... Like, 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 were you suggesting that like they gave Tom McGee red and yellow because like red and yellow are superhero colors? Because like... it's, no, because it's the top baby faces colors. Now, but... Like, what I'm saying is, like, do you think that WWF thinks that red and yellow is super babyface and that's why they gave it to Hulk Hogan and that's why they also gave it to Tom McGee? And you like, know what I mean? Is also the opposite of, like, how every guy in light blue is getting de-pushed? Right. Which, I've wondered and, about whether or not that was intentional, and I know, like, Honky Tonk Man's talking about it, but... Like, you think about it, and, like, yeah, every guy, just about every guy in light blue is, like, a guy being de-pushed. Don Morocco. <laughs> Co- Don Morocco, Clearly. Coco Beware. Yeah. I mean, Honky Tonk Man when he was wearing light blue. Yes. Bravo gets more of a push when he's in light blue. What did he switch from? Ooh. But he switched from, like, plain, didn't he? Yes. Like, he was, like... But did, he had light blue with something like he had like the a design on there, right? Yeah, Rick Martel gets more of a push when he's in light blue, but that was a very light blue. Uh, yeah, that might be like neon periwinkle. What you he was wearing, you would say, you feel like that's more of a like metallic blue, so that doesn't count. Kind of, yeah. Okay, like like when I think like like I'm thinking of Don Morocco's. You think like a baby, at like WrestleMania baby 4. blue sky blue, yeah. Yeah. Something in like, that general area of the palette. Yeah, the, the Rick Martel blue is different. Okay, that's fair. Anyway, where uh, are we going with this? Okay, yeah, we didn't talk about the the production and the commentary on this match. Okay. So, I believe International Wrestling Challenge starts a few months after this. It's like early 87 sometime. I don't know exactly when. And... It doesn't seem like there's a hole that this match should have gone in on a regular wrestling challenge, but they're they're doing commentary. They do the promo, which they didn't show the whole thing on the network, but he does the post-match promo with Ken Resnick. They're doing mm-hmm. full commentary. They do the different camera angles. They do the music with the replays and stuff, like they're going into a break. Yeah. So... Is it possible, I guess Brett would have to go through his audio diaries, is it just possible that Brett didn't ask him not to air it till after? After they did all that post-production work? Well, that, that's not necessarily post, because they did a lot of stuff live to tape still in that era. There is more post-production once they start, uh, once they open their own studio in 88. Okay, okay. But, like, they they did it all. Or whatever. They got it, like, as if they were. And then what's the earliest dark match we've seen, though? But it it was... He was under the... Like, didn't they tell him it was going to be a dark match, though? Abby, he says he, like, made sure that it wouldn't air anywhere. And... But it's treated like this big debut. I... The way it's it's kind, It's really puzzling. It's framed like it's a TV main event for the week. Especially with, like, the unknown Tom McGee beating Bret Hart. Yeah, like, but it's not like... Like, the unknown newcomer guy. 
but he's not framed as like guy who we should expect to be a job guy either. No, he's not, but he's definitely like they they were saying he was a new guy at the World Wrestling Federation. So like he's obviously like a new person that they're going to like give something to, but like for him to just like come on the scene and beat Bret Hart out of nowhere, like that's pretty weird, isn't right. it? It's hard to wrap your hand around what was going on. Like, did Vince just lie to Brett? You know? <laughs> He's never done that before. Right. Or since. Like, what was the example? <laughs> what was that last example that I gave about, like, how Vince has always just been an asshole to the hearts? Hold on. Let me let me search my tweets, because I'm drawing a blank. There was one that it was, like, earlier than just about everything else, other than other than maybe the stuff with Stu. Um, let's see. Heart was it hard? Did I say hearts or heart family? Let's see. Okay. Okay, no, it was later. It was um okay, it was from an 89 Matt Watch. I tweeted, Vince has always been a dick to the Hart family. Always. And it was here's your item from Matt Watch, as written by Steve Everly. Blue Blazer, Owen Hart, has been pinning Ron Bass and match opening sequences around the WWF circuit. Until the recent Calgary show when the Titan Boys had Bass pin Owen clean in the middle, right in front of his closest friends, fans, and family. If a certain organization doesn't go after Owen with all due seriousness and groom him as a major star in this business, I'll never be able to explain. That's what that was. But, like, Vince always has been kind of, like, a very specific kind of asshole to the hearts. Yeah, but also at the same time, he's been very specific asshole about people losing where they come from. But not He's all, done not, that a not, lot. But he wasn't doing that back then as much. No, but, I mean, he's done that a lot. But, yeah, definitely, yeah, he's been an asshole to the hearts, like, for sure. And I'm looking at this, and we've gone much longer than I thought we were. So, but I, I just want to finish this this kind of line of discussion. Sure. So, we know, we know that this was intended to air as the, let me make sure I have the right date, the March twenty first, eighty seven episode of World of Sport episode of World of Sport, because the, the, that would have been the second WWF episode of World of Sport. The first one was January seventeenth, which was uh, Hearts Bulldogs, the November eighty six Boston match, a Kamala squash of Sal Balomo from the November nineteenth South Bend tapings, and a Hogan Savage lumberjack match from just under a year earlier at MSG. Okay. So that was the first one. And then the second one was listed in TV Times in the UK as being Hulk Hogan versus Kamala and Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. And hmm. it didn't air, though. There was no WWF wrestling that week. Instead, it was an all-star wrestling promoted show with John Cortez versus Keith Hayward and uh, the team of Kendo Nagasaki and R Mark Rollerball Rocco against Iron Fist Clive Myers and Flying Fuji Yamada, the future Jason Liger. Man. What a match that sounds like. Yeah. There's some names in that. But clearly there were plans to air this on TV somewhere, but it didn't happen. So... D did it really never get aired on television anywhere? I mean, not that we know of. I mean, once more stuff international started to come out that no one ever heard of, I started, like, tweeting, like, would it really shock anyone if it just showed up and like on like Kazakhstani wrestling challenge, like sure. It Yo, that dude with the Kuwaiti stuff is awesome. I'm actually surprised <laughs> we didn't talk about that earlier. So briefly, so there's a guy in Kuwait 
that has a channel full of wrestling stuff he uploads. Um, let me make sure I'm finding the right channel. It's mostly just weird shit that looks like it aired almost all bootleg-like in Kuwait. Because there's just all sorts of weird wrestling that he has that just has, like, various subtitles. Now, he hasn't mm-hmm. uploaded that much lately. He's, okay, he's uploaded a couple things from the list in the last few months. Um, but he has in his uploads, what is it, three matches from Kuwaiti tours in the mid-80s? Yeah, from, like, 86. Yes, which... There are a few harder things in wrestling to get information about that you feel like you should than the WWF Middle Eastern tours from the mid-80s. Yeah, like, the only thing harder is, like, trying to find information on, like, those random tours of, like, Mongolia and shit. Who did Mongolian tours? Like, wasn't there something where there was, like, a... In, like, 94, I feel like there... I feel like I read a result from, like, Dick Slater and stuff in Mongolia or something like that. Hold on. In, like, 94, I feel like... I but feel like that was what a... company. I don't know. I I I I, I don't know what so it was. It was, an it was an indie. Yeah, hold on. I'm I'm gonna look up uh, Dick Slater's cage match. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna find because I know Dick Slater was on these like weird looking shows when I was doing um when I was clicking around on cage match late one night. And we don't really have much information about the like. Jim Barnett and Steve Ricard stuff in, like, Philippines and Hong Kong and stuff like that either. But you would think you would have more information about these because they're WWF tours. Although they're right, also, exactly. Or the Crockett Middle Eastern tours from, like, 85, too, where it's, like, a mix of Crockett and non-Crockett guys, which I only know about because of J.J. Uh, Dillon's book. God, there's probably so many instances of things that have occurred that... Uh, we just have no idea about because they just haven't been reported on. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, uh, what's this guy? Fuck. Oh, he's Q Eight Wrestling Space Twenty Seventeen is the channel. Um, Oh yeah. But anyway, like, no, it would not shock me at all if Bret Hart Tommy did air somewhere. I English, otherwise, I don't know. But. Because, I mean, they, they they had it all wrapped up with a bow on top with a fancy presentation. Like you said, with the replays and with the music and... Well, okay, here's a theory. Is it possible that maybe before they did anything with the match, the, t- the beginning of the tape got damaged, and that's why the copy that's out there begins with Brett having McGee in a headlock? Maybe... Maybe that's why they never used it. Maybe, like, it was... Not that they should have, because they fucking told Brett that they wouldn't. <laughs> but but it, maybe that's why it didn't air on World of Sport. Maybe that's why that episode never took place. Right. Now, now, do you think they told Brett it would never? they would never show it I so mean, they Brett would get a better match? A, Brett's thing is he goes to the... He, he sees the lineup on the board, or he's talking to the agent, I forget which... And he sees that he's supposed to job to McGee. And he's like, well, no, wait a second. I, you know, it's not like he's being pushed huge, although he is actually going to win the tag titles in a few months. But He's no one, a name guy. No one that, but he's still like, something of a name guy. And yeah. it's like, you know, Rochester is somewhere where they are all the time. And he's like, yeah, this is one of my regular towns. This guy is debuting. What are we doing here? And Vince is like, you're the only one I trust to show me if I can make money with him. 
So Brett's like, okay, mm. that's a challenge. And just gets Vince to guarantee that it'll never air on TV. So I, I, I haven't actually seen anyone talk about that, really, that it's joined very slightly in progress. That would be my guess. Um, I can't think of any other explanation. Especially since it's so fully produced, like, oh, it has just happens to begin like that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's weird, right? Like, I, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, and also I guess it would mean that... It makes me wonder if they did everything live to tape and they didn't have any uh, individual camera sh- feeds either. Like, they edited... That, that's the thing, too, that presumably it was done live, the camera switching and stuff. So hmm. that would also mean they might... I mean, you would th- you would hope they also recorded individual camera feeds, but maybe they didn't. So, I guess we. Should... I'm not really sure. Yeah. I think we've said just about everything we could say, though. Any closing thoughts? Uh, anybody who's got rare wrestling footage, please put it on the internet so Bix and I can talk about it. Yes, and it's something you're worried like will get you shot by um, Jerry McDevitt or whoever. Let us know. Let us know, and we'll figure something out. Send us a DM and send us a link to a Google Drive, and yeah. then we'll take the heat for it. Or at least I will, because I'm not afraid. <laughs> I'm you, not you afraid of Bix's friend, Jerry McDevitt. You don't have any <laughs> goals of doing announcing for the World Wrestling Federation? Uh, brother, I believe that ship has sailed a long time ago. Uh you got friends there now. You got friends there who do important things like put together documentaries on Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. That is true indeed. Well, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to talk to him about maybe getting to the bottom of this Bill Gold versus Hector Guerrero case. Uh, well, and now in Bill Gold versus Nature Boy Buddy Landell. Yeah, yo, that is incredible. What was Buddy Landell doing that day in WCW in that, 1997? That makes me wonder if he got a tryout to try to do the NWO Nature Boy gimmick thing. Because that was, I know, that's not just an urban legend. That's like a thing he pitched, right? And and they they put him against Goldberg for that? Here's what a video. Yeah. Fuck. Hey, hey, buddy, here's an overly <laughs> enthusiastic NFL player. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, man. And it's Holy his second hell. match ever. And his, and his first match that's not with his trainer. I wonder if Buddy... I wonder where Buddy's knee pads were. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I would love to see that. Sorry, bro. Buddy Landell. I am, these feet ain't leaving the ground tonight. <laughs> Buddy Landell versus Bill Goldberg in June of 1997. Talk about a hidden gem. That's from a TV taping. It's a dark night. So they they had to have ca- there were cameras there. Yes, that's what I mean. That, that that's why this uh, little portion of our niche uh, entertainment choice is so cool because things like that have happened. And you got to think, well, if there were cameras there, there might as well have been taping everything, right? Just yep. for, uh, just in case, right? So before you take us home, would you like to hear some of the other matches on this WCW Saturday Night TV taping? Oh my God, yes. I'm not going to go through all of them, but okay. We've got Joey Mags going over Chad Fortune. <laughs> yes, Techno Team 2000's Chad Fortune. Also, Joey Mags was still in WCW in 1997. In June. Uh, <laughs> What? Yeah, 
Dude, he would just pop up from time to time. Yeah, Absolutely. So. Hugh Morris going over. Johnny Attitude. Okay. Uh, Scotty Riggs over Mike Enos. Vincent. That was probably really good. It could have been, yeah. Vincent over Mr. JL. Let's see what else we have here. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Mortis and Rath over Scott and Steve Armstrong. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, Glacier and Ernest Miller over Mark Starr and Jerry Flynn. So three quarters of a martial arts match there. Yeah, yeah, they they picked the wrong Ashford Smith brother to be in that match. <laughs> if they want some karate, they should get Chris Champ in. Uh, Holy shit. Let's see. Rick and yeah, Scott... Still... Oh, oh, no, you gotta hear this one. Rick and Scott yeah. Steiner defeated La Parca and Damien Cesses. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I bet they did that, uh, the Doomsday Bulldog to Damien. Yes. I bet they did that. And then I'll finish off with really the best possible WCWB show match in this era. Lord Steven Regal over Psychosis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They cooked every time. Uh, did that Virgil versus uh, JL match make TV? It does does Have I never At seen it? At least on historyofwwe.com, it does not say. Um, oh, oh man, God, I need to find that. Some of these power plant guys had ridiculous names. There is a Nitro Dark match where Goldberg defeats John Betcha, as isn't spelled like you betcha, B-E-T-C-H-A. Awesome. Uh, that's way too early for her to have been Johnny Stamboli, but that would have been a definite name for Johnny Stamboli. Johnny Betcha. Yeah. Absolutely. Who, who was Absolutely. also, well, who was the power plant Big Bad John? Um... I always forget who this was. Let's see. Oh, no, that's the 70s Big Bad John. No, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at Cage Match. Well, I guess if I can find a Crystal Chandelier show on... Uh, was that... Uh, Crystal Chandelier, that was in Kennesaw, right? Was that Kennesaw, the venue in Kennesaw? Yeah. Yeah, that would be a holy grail if they taped it. I've got to think they taped them. Um, Yo, okay, speaking of things that is inexplicably taped, how about that fucking uh, hour-long power plant sparring session between Regal and Robbie Brookside. Okay, so that's not inexplicably taped. That's when Robbie Brookside was doing the video diary thing that he shot all that stuff for that they did on BBC or whatever. Okay, poor choice of words. But still. <laughs> I mean, well, also, the answer to that then would be the, uh, I still haven't watched it yet, the, what is it, Booker T, Chris P- Craig Pittman amateur wrestling battle that's on the net. Yeah! What, what, what? Where did that come from? How much more of that exists? I know. Like, oh, God. I That's... just want... If yeah. it made sense, I would take up uh, Adam's circumstance on the offer he's given me at least three times a year for the past seven years, <laughs> which is to work for him <laughs> at the uh, whatever. Oh, God. At the I gimmick up there. Okay. Big Bad John was Max Muscle, Max Muscle, so he wouldn't be oh. John Betcha. Okay. And that was in what, like 93, 94? 93. Crystal Right. They had some weird shows on paper. Yeah. But shows that I would love to see, just to see what they looked like. Well, the one that came up on Cage Match is, and I think that, that'll be a good closure for us, the Ace defeated the Gambler. Which, why they're not tag team partners, I don't know. Well, 
maybe the gambler got dealt a bad hand and uh, the ace. I also have uh, no idea who the ace is either. Probably some dude in a mask. I guess. Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker over Bryant Anderson. Okay. Oh, God, this sounds like the worst match in the history of the planet. Big Bad John went to a double DQ with Jungle Jim Steele. So 1993 Jungle Jim Steele. Uh, Terry Taylor over Mike Winner. Okay, that would probably be good. That could be okay. Um, I mean, I know, like, Terry Taylor has negative opinions, but... Uh... Well, yeah, he... <laughs> he's not the trainer working with Pez Watley on this show. That's Mike Hayes. <laughs> Wait, what happened? Michael Hayes went to a double count out with Pez Watley in the next match. See, you know what? I think Michael Hayes would have probably been really good in the 90s. Oh, if he still wrestled for most of, for the second half of the yeah. 90s? For the most I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Doc Hendricks. I mean, I really love Doc Hendricks, but uh, man, I bet he probably could have had some really good matches in like 96. Well, he legit got hurt though, right? I think. But like when he came, like when he did that thing in like 99, what was it? Like 99 oh, Power, Power Pro? Pro. Yeah, yeah. It was fucking awesome. I don't know. And That's he, just me. Your main event on uh, September 28th, 1993 at the beautiful Crystal Sandalier in Kennesaw, Georgia. Bobby Eaton and Yoshi Kwan defeated Thunder and Lightning. Oh, absolutely. In front absolutely. of 58 people. Yep. And they all got their money's worth. Some of them probably didn't pay to be there. Uh, but Bobby Eaton and Yoshi Kwan. Bobby Eaton and Chris Champion as a tag team. Think about that. Midnight Wildside. Wow. The Midnight Breed. Yes. The New Express. Uh, it doesn't work so well, but uh, <laughs> the Midnight Breed. Fuck. If if they, I don't know. I I think on paper, Chris Champion and Bobby Eaton as a tag team, they probably did some cool shit together because yeah. they probably thought that, hey, nobody's ever going to see this stuff. Let's just do cool things against Thunder and Lightning. Yeah. And they probably did some cool stuff that they probably would have never done before. Or, like, with each other. You know what I mean? Because why would Chris Champion and Bobby never team up? Nah. Well, Because they're at the Crystal Johnny, Chandelier. Why would Johnny be bad and Keith Cole team up on September well, 21st in front of 42 people at the first Crystal Chandelier show? Because Kent Cole was busy, obviously. Why well, would, uh, I don't know, that, no other weird tag teams, but these shows also had Ice Train and Michael Hayes. Max Singles. And Brad Armstrong, yeah. Yeah, man. I, I want to see all of those shows. Like, oh, God. I, Michael Hayes and the Ace. Maybe we can figure out who the Ace is. Oh, oh, God. That's right. I forgot that one of the results has this. A member of Harlem Heat defeated Tom Sank. A member. <laughs> Not what, sure which. Taylor said in the results, too? <laughs> also on that card, Arn and Bryant Anderson defeated Big Bad John and the Gambler. Oh my god, that so that's amazing. So that's his shoot. I mean, no, he seems to be the only shoot kid, which would make Bryant his kayfabe. Nephew. What was the last thing they let? Well, the last thing was brothers because of the Wrestle War 90 ad. So that yeah. would him. But, but Nephew, Oli was right. also his cousin and his uncle at different times. Well, you know, it floated. And also it's the South. So. Yeah, probably all three. Yeah. Um,. The southern, the real southern part of Minnesota, by the way. 
Tech Slashinger and Shanghai Pierce over Tom Sank and Jim Steele. Yep, give it to me. Uh, Texans Shanghai fucking ruled. I'll tell you that much. Oh God, Big Daddy Bradford. Who was that? I don't know. <laughs> Tommy Rich all of a sudden works at Crystal Chandelier show, show against Tom Sank. Well, you know, he probably met. Uh... Oh fuck! Why am I blanking on his name? Rod Dixon. No, no, no. Uh, Mr. How do you talk about him on BTS all the time? Uh, his guy, his meth dealer. Mr. Donnie. He probably met Mr. Donnie in the fucking parking lot and decided to work Tom Zank. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm here buying note. meth. I'm here buying meth. Might as well work with the Z-Man. <laughs> okay, take us home, Emil. All right. Well, uh, this has been the first edition of the uh, Wrestling Gemcast Hidden Gem or the Cast. Hidden Gemcast or whatever name that we uh, have been uh, this what's taking happened. around. This is what happens when Emil goes to a quinceanera before. Uh, hey, before. she was 16 today. The quinceanera was last year. Okay. Uh but I, I did have a couple of Modellos. Yes, that's sure. That is for sure. Um, but yeah, this has been the first edition of the uh, Hidden Gem Cast where uh, Bix and I just talk about uh, wrestling that has just come out of the woodwork. And we hope to do a lot more of this soon. And in order for that to happen, we would like for you and anybody you know to just Put all the rare wrestling that we know that you own on the internet for free so we can all watch it and talk about it together. Right, Bix? Yeah. So we'll see you, or you'll hear us next time when we do this show. Bye! Bye!